0: Joe Biden celebrates all the single ladies who put the Democrats over the lines during the midterms. We examine why single women have become a reliable and large voting block for Democrats and Trump launches on DeSantis. Again, I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. I talk about them every single show. Why well, haven't you gotten a VPN yet? Get ExpressVPN right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Speaking of which. Have you ever heard of data brokers? Those are the people who collect and sell all your online data. They stitch together detailed profiles of your online browsing history, then they sell that profile to advertisers. Well, no biggie, right? Well, it is kind of a biggie because data brokers also sell your information to DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, as well as the IRS. I don't actually like having the government knowing everything there is to know about me online. That's why I protect my online activity with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN hides your IP address, making it much more difficult for data brokers to identify who you are and create that profile they then hand on to others. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of network traffic to keep your data safe, even on public Wi-Fi. I have ExpressVPN downloaded on all my devices, including my home Wi-Fi router. All I have to do is click one button to turn it on, and I am now free to roam the internet. So do the same thing I do to protect your online activity. Make sure your online activity and data are protected with the best VPN money can buy. Visit expressvpn.com slash Ben right now. Get three extra months for free through my special link. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash Ben. Expressvpn.com slash Ben to learn more and protect your data the way that I do my own. Expressvpn.com slash Ben. Also, if you own a business, it's been pretty rough out there. You could probably use a break. Innovation refunds can help you out. If your business has five or more employees and managed to survive COVID, You could be eligible to receive a payroll tax rebate of up to $26,000 per employee. It's not a loan. There's no payback. It is a refund on your taxes. The challenge is getting your hands on it. How do you cut through the red tape and get your business the refund money? Well, you head on over to GetRefunds.com. Their team of tax attorneys are highly trained in this little-known payroll tax refund program. They've already returned $1 billion to businesses, and they can help you as well. They do all the work, no charge up front. They simply share a percentage of the cash they get for you. Businesses of all types can qualify, including those who took PPP, nonprofits, even those who had increases in sales. Just head on over to GetRefunds.com, click on Qualify Me, answer a few quick questions. This payroll tax refund is only available for a limited amount of time. Don't miss out. Head on over to GetRefunds.com. Again, that's GetRefunds.com. If you paid the government too much money, why exactly would you want to leave it in their grubby hands? Instead, head on over to GetRefunds.com, see how much money you could get back. That is GetRefunds.com once more. GetRefunds.com. Well, first, I want to start by saying happy Veterans Day to all of the people who have served in our military. Thank you so much. Obviously, we have a debt we can never repay to you. You fought for the Constitution. You fought for the country. And that's something that, that can't be blessed enough. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Well, we have to bring you the latest in the vote count because apparently the votes in Arizona and Nevada are being counted, hand counted by the sloth from Zootopia. I have no other explanation for why it is going to take, I kid you not, until next week to find out who actually won the gubernatorial seat in Arizona and the Senate seat in Nevada. Now, it does look as though Republicans have lost the Senate seat in Arizona. It looks like Blake Masters is going to lose. Most people are now forecasting that Blake Masters is too far behind to make up ground. He's over 100,000 votes behind Mark Kelly in the Arizona Senate seat, which means that Republicans have to win both Nevada and Georgia. Georgia is going to be a runoff. They have to win both of those seats in order to take back the Senate. That looks somewhat unlikely. At this point, the vote count in Nevada is really, really close. At this point in time, Laxalt has about a 9,000 vote advantage on Catherine Cortez Masto, and that's about 90% reporting. Meanwhile, over in Arizona, a lot of eyes on the Kerry Lake race. She is down right now about 27,000 votes. Only 82% of the vote has actually been counted in Arizona, apparently because they weren't aware that there was an election happening this year or something, and it just took them by surprise. No one really knows why it's taking them so long. CNN actually has, believe it or not, a decent rundown on this. In Arizona, CNN's decision desk estimates there are still 675,000 ballots to be counted. The majority of those, about 400,000 ballots, are in Maricopa County. That's the state's most populous county. That includes Phoenix. Of those ballots, about 290,000 were dropped off at vote centers on Election Day, according to Bill Gates, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors chairman. Those ballots have to be processed before they can be counted, leading to a lag time in tabulation. Gates said, we're now getting into what we call the late earlies. So these are early ballots we would have received over the weekend or in specifically 290,000 that were dropped off on election day at our vote centers. The total was a record, he added. Those are expected to go for lake by a not insignificant margin. In addition, Maricopa County has about 17,000 ballots that were attempted to be counted on election day or not read by the tabulator because of a printer error. Those ballots still need to be counted as well. So it's going to take a long time. In Pima County, that's Arizona's second most populous, officials said there are roughly 159,000 ballots left to be counted as of Wednesday evening. The county doesn't expect to complete the count until November 14th or 15th. The uncounted ballots include more than 54,000 early ballots still being processed by the recorder's office. Nevada still has mail-in ballots arriving as well. Clark County received more than 12,000 postmarked ballots from the post office on Wednesday, according to the Clark County Registrar. The number dropped significantly on Thursday. The county received about 626 ballots from the Postal Service, but that is a very, very tight election. It's quite possible that you'll end up with a hand recount in some of these states because things are so close. Meanwhile, overall, the Republican gains in the House seem to be shrinking fairly dramatically. Steve Cornacki is now suggesting, according to his NBC polling, that the, or or their sort of surveying and, and studies, that the eventual Republican House majority will be a House majority of, I kid you not, three seats. They will end up with a 220 House majority, okay, it takes 218 to end up with just a sheer 218 to 217 majority. That'd be an extraordinarily small majority, smaller currently than the majority of the Democrats have. Those are not amazing numbers, considering that this was supposed to be, at the very least, a red tide election in favor of the Republicans. Now, it's possible we still don't have all the votes in. It's possible still that Democrats could maintain control of the House. Now, that's unlikely because essentially Democrats would have to clean sweep the rest of the outstanding races. With that said, it is not totally out of the realm of possibility. Joe Biden has already called to congratulate Kevin McCarthy on becoming the prospective Speaker of the House. We'll have to see how everything shakes down. Bottom line is dramatic underperformance by the House Republicans in a wide variety of races. So all of this raises questions about which constituencies put Democrats over the top, because broad scale over the course of the country, Republicans did outpoll Democrats by somewhere between two and four percent. Democrats did win the what they call the House popular vote. Now, the House popular vote doesn't mean a thing because just like the presidential vote, popular vote doesn't, that's not how you get people elected. The electoral college is how you do it with the presidency. House popular vote means nothing because you could stack up a bunch of votes in New York and that wouldn't solve for the problem of winning close races in Kentucky if you're the Republicans, for example. But there are a couple of factors that people have thrown out there as possibilities for why the Democrats did better than expected. So first, the Democrats claimed that it was the young, that if you looked at the number of young people who showed up, that young people were the ones who put Democrats over the top. Thank God for the young people, because in the exit polling, it showed that people above the age of 40 voted Republican. People below the age of 40 voted Democrat. There's only one problem. There was no youthquake. David Shore, who's the head of data science at Blue Rose Research, he used to be a sort of mainstream data guy, except that he said things Democrats didn't like, so they threw him out on his ass. Well, he, uh, he put out on Twitter, there was no youthquake. Turnout relative to 2018 was strongly associated with age, with turnout increasing starkly in older counties and decreasing the most in younger counties. So the notion that a bunch of young people basically put the Democrats over the top is not true. So who did put the Democrats over the top? Well, it appears that the single greatest factor putting Democrats over the top demographically, because remember, Democrats lost with, they, they, they actually lost votes from 2018 to 2022 with black voters, with Hispanic voters, with white voters, like across the board, they did worse than they did in 2018. So what exactly helped them mitigate their losses? The answer is unmarried women. Right? Single women are the ones who helped put Democrats across the finish line in a lot of these races. The Washington Examiner broke down the vote by marital status in their exit polling. What they found is that married men voted Republican over Democrat 59 to 39. Married women voted Republican over Democrat 56 to 42. Unmarried men, single men voted Republican 52 to 45. And all the single ladies voted Democrat. They voted 68 to 31 for the Democrats which of course prompted Joe Biden yesterday to congratulate American women on quote unquote beating the hell out of the Republicans. Now, presumably he really just means single women because the married women voted for the Republicans. And as we're gonna discuss at length right now, we're gonna talk about why single women have now become a large increasing voter block in favor of the Democrats. It's It's a great example of how societal hollowing out of institutions has created entire new voter blocks who are greatly enthralled with the power of government. Here is Joe Biden thanking all the ladies. As I said, women in America made their voices heard, man. I said last year that one of the most extraordinary things about the Dobbs decision is what was about to challenge American women when the justice said, let's see, they have it in their power, basically saying, let's see what they're going to do. Well, guess what? Y'all showed up and beat the hell out of them. You beat the hell out of the who? The justices? That doesn't sound like bringing unity and peace, Mr. President. but. The underlying message here, and this is something really important, is that when you get rid of the social institutions that actually are the middlemen for your life, right? They they, they are the things that shape your life. They shape how you interact with society. And the closer the institution is to you, the more it shapes your life. Your family is a social institution. We've treated it now as a private institution. It is not. Family is a social institution. It has always been reinforced and undergirded by the rules of the road that exist in our communities, in our small-scale societies. Typically, the way that you are shaped as a human being, you're born into a family, your family exists within a local community. That local community exists within a broader political framework, within a civil society. That local civil society exists within a state society, which exists within a federal society, right? There are these layers into which you are born, and they all shape you. When you eviscerate, as the left has successfully done in the United States, All of the layers between you and the federal government, and it's only worked with certain groups, but when you eviscerate those layers, people end up very dependent on the federal government because the only institution that actually helps you and shapes you is that institution. And so this is what we've seen with the death of marriage. A lot of Republicans have been conservatives, been very upset about the rise of same-sex marriage or or the lack of marriage in the United States. I've been very upset about the idea that marriage has gone by the wayside in the United States. The reason for that is the redefinition of marriage from social institution to private institution that is supposed to be greenlit and enshrined by the federal government. The only institution that really matters in this viewpoint is not marriage is is an adjunct. It doesn't matter marriage. It's not an independent institution. Family is not an independent institution anymore. Essentially, family is just how you get together in your house. It's a bonds of relationship. It's about love. It's not about the effect on society and the rules for your family, are just kind of between who's in the household. The changing definition of marriage is a fundamental fact in Western life, and it's completely destroying the society at large because it's essentially eviscerating, as we say, all of the social bonds that exist absent the federal government. You're now an atomized individual who lives in perhaps consensual relations with a small group of people. And then over time, those those ties kind of fall apart, and it's just you the individual floating atomistically through society and the federal government. And there's nothing in between because all of the social fabric has been destroyed. Marriage is the most obvious example of this because marriage is the fundamental basis for all society. Again, marriage was a social institution. This is why you have a wedding in front of a public, for example. This is, this is why in, in Judaism, you actually have a document that is signed by witnesses because it is not merely you have decided to get together with somebody. This has social ramifications. The community has an interest in whether you stay together, for example, with your spouse. The community has an interest in how you raise your kids. That does not mean that they get to rule how you raise your kids in every aspect, but it does mean that they help define the institution that defines your marriage, that defines your kids. Marriage was always a social institution. Everybody understands this. This has been true throughout human history. Only now have we redefined marriage into sort of a private arrangement between you and the other person and treated it as though you and the other person had sort of like a I don't know, like a a consensual business arrangement that is not even subject to court oversight. We treat marriage now with the the casualness of you and a friend getting together for lunch. And that is, is not what marriage traditionally was. This is why you've seen, for example, the wide acceptance of cohabitation as a substitute for marriage. Because cohabitation is what marriage is now perceived as. If you ask most Americans now, what's the difference between two people living together and two people who are married? They'd have a very tough time telling you. Now, in the olden days, and I'm talking here like 20 years ago, if you ask people what's the difference between cohabitation and marriage, what they would say is one of these things is living to, they used to literally call it living together in sin, right? The idea would be that you're living without any sort of social imprimatur for your relationship. And this is something not good. You want a social imprimatur for your relationship. You want a religious imprimatur for your relationship. You want to be inculcated into an institution because institutions shape and guide you. Cohabitation doesn't do anything of, this, of the sort. It, it, it conveys no commitment. What what we've done in this country is that we've essentially gotten rid of that, and so what we see is changing views of marriage. For example, so Pew Research, if you look at their, their they did a study in 2019, marriage and cohabitation in the United States. The share of adults who have lived with a romantic partner is now higher than the share who have ever been married. Married adults are more satisfied with their relationships and more trusting of their partners. That, of course, is not a shock, as we'll talk about. None of this is actually good for the single ladies. None of this is actually good for the country. It turns out that the happiest women in America are the women who are married with kids. Those are the happiest women in America. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have a job. Doesn't mean they can't work. But if we are trying to design a life path for people, I'm not saying that the government is there to force you into a life path. What I am saying is that if we are to create social institutions that foster human happiness, which is what social institutions are for, we might want to look at the things that actually make people happy. And it turns out that telling women that the things that are most meaningful to them in life, like getting married and having kids, that these things are simple sort of adjuncts to a successful life that maybe you do them, maybe you don't. They're really not all that important. You can be just as happy a life sipping wine at age 40, single, alone in your apartment while working 2,200 billable hours at a law firm. You're going to be just as happy as you would be if you had been married for 15 years and you have three little kids playing around you and you're working part-time. That does not seem correct. By any available sociological data, that does not seem correct. And yet that is what many people have been inculcated into. And the institution of marriage does not shape people. This is why, by the way, women vote differently if they are married and if they are single. It's for two reasons. One, the subgroup of women who get married tend to be more conservative. And two, the institution of marriage actually does shape women because your interests change. You're now more interested in how your kids are brought up. You're more interested in your family not being ruled by the federal government, by the federal government not getting between you and your kids or you and your husband or you and your local community. Marriage actually changes people. You can see that with men, by the way. Right? Men also change, not as greatly as women do, but they also change. They get more conservative when they get married. So when you undermine marriage in a society, what you end up doing is undermining conservatism, not particularly shockingly. Young adults in the United States are particularly accepting of cohabitation, according to Pew. 78% of those aged 18 to 29 say it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together, even if they don't plan to get married. But majorities across all age groups now share this view. This is a radical shift in how society has worked really since the 1960s and the rise of birth control. And because before that. If you live together in sin, the idea was that likely you were going to have some sort of illegitimate child and that would be bad for the kid. And so it's about the externality of the kid. But that's not really the reason why living together used to be considered morally wrong. It was not just about the kid. It was about the idea that living together without any serious long-term commitment is a sin against the other person. That whether the person consents to it or not, it is not good for them and it is not good for you. That a better thing to do is to put sex within the confines of a committed lifelong relationship because this creates trust, it creates bonds, it creates social fabric. It embeds you in time and in space. These are good things. We've broken all those boundaries. Not religious people, by the way. About three quarters of Catholics, 74% of Catholics and white Protestants who do not self-identify as born again or evangelical now say that it's acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together even if they don't plan to get married. But if you identify as born again or evangelical, basically, if if you are a very religious person, you still believe that there is a problem with this sort of behavior. Now, as far as what makes people happier, the answer is that what makes people happier actually is getting married. If you get married, you're likely to have higher earnings. You're likely to have more sexual satisfaction. You're likely to raise your kids in a better way. The The, the notion that marriage does nothing for you is, is not particularly silly, but is, is not particularly true. But, And what you see is that now, here's the key poll result from this Pew Research poll. Most Americans don't see being married as essential to living a fulfilling life, which is kind of wild. That is kind of wild because that is the most important relationship you will ever have in your entire life is the marriage that you have and the family that you create. And telling people this and inculcating this into people that it's not essential. What's more essential? Having working long hours? Is that more essential? What's more essential? Sexual... Libertinism, what exactly is more essential? I struggle to think of a thing more essential than marriage, actually. Only small shares of U.S. adults say married is essential for a man, 16% or a woman, 17% to live a fulfilling life. 54% say being married is important, but not essential for each. 3 in 10 say being married is not important for a man or a woman to live a fulfilling life. Now, what that really says, by the way, is that Americans are so afraid of being labeled judgmental, that they refuse to say that it's actually essential for people to get married. It is essential for people to get married. That doesn't mean that everybody will. It doesn't mean that people can't live lives individually that are the best that they want to choose if they don't get married. But is it an essential? Yeah, it's an essential. I would say having kids is essential to people's lives. Social institutions, again, are breaking down. Marriage is inherently a social institution. It used to be a key component of what we used to call civil society in this country. Once marriage started being seen as something else, once it started being seen as simply a private arrangement between two people, it began to collapse. So this meant a couple of things. One, once it began to be seen as not a social arrangement, but a a private thing between two people, you ended up expanding the definition of marriage to include everyone, right? This is why you have Joe Rogan talking with Matt Walsh about marriage, and Joe is like, I don't understand why two people can't just get married if they love each other. And Matt is like, it's a social institution, that's why. Because society has an interest in a man and a woman getting married and having kids. It's two very different versions of what marriage is. It's a definitional question. It also means the concomitant decline of marriage altogether, because if it's really just about two people who love each other, why can't you do that without a marital document? Why can't you do that without a prenup and all the complications of having to file taxes together? Why don't you just get together and live together? And that's what we're actually seeing. You can see this in the marriage rates in the United States. And what we're watching here is the slow roll death of Western civilization through the decline of marriage. And you can see it in the United States. You can see these stats. So. This is a chart, for those who cannot see it, of 144 years of marriage and divorce in the United States. What you see starting, and we have pretty good stats from the census, starting just after the Civil War, you see that the rate of marriage per 1,000 people was just under 10. That stays relatively stable all the way until about the mid-1980s. Here's what happens. It starts to go up during during the 1900 to 1910 era to just above 10 as increasing prosperity allows people to get married. And then it goes way down during the Great Depression. People stop getting married because they can't afford to get married. And then you see during World War II that it spikes the rate of marriage. And you see a spike in divorce directly after World War II because a lot of people sort of rushed into marriage thinking I'm going to die tomorrow, so I'm going to get married today. So you see a giant spike in divorce that happens right in 1946. And then it kind of goes back down to the normal. And you have these very high rates of marriage up until about the early 1950s. Now, there's sort of an artificial dip in the level of marriage between 1955 and 1965 or so. What that is, is not that fewer people are getting married. It's that there's a giant baby boom. So there's just more people. So if the rate is the number of people getting married per 1,000 people in the United States, if you have a giant wave of people who are now born, that means that the rate is going to go down even if the same number of people year on year are getting married. So this rate stays fairly stable, right? About 10 10 per 1,000 people are getting married every year in the United States. And then in about 1985, you see a steep decline all the way down to right now in the United States, about 6.8, 6.8. So from our height or average height, when you're talking about mid-1970s, about like 11, close to 12 sometimes, marriages per 1,000 people, we're now down to a little, maybe 60% of that. And it's a steady decline. It's a very marked and very steady decline. You can see it happening. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Everybody hopes that they're never going to need life insurance. But here's the thing. Everybody will, because I hate to break it to you. It's a sad story. Everyone is going to die. And, and when, God forbid, that happens to you, that means there will still be expenses. The bills continue. Life insurance helps your family out if God forbid something happens to you. life insurance through your workplace might not offer enough protection for your family's needs. It's not going to follow you if you leave your job. since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age now would be the time to buy. Policy genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies and find your lowest price. With policy genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 17 bucks per month for 500 grand in coverage. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid those unnecessary medical exams. These agents are not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. No added fees. Your personal information remains private. There's a reason they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net, and you deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head on over to policygenius.com Shapiro. Click the link in the description. Get your free life insurance quotes. See how much you could save. That's policygenius.com Shapiro. Also, I love spending the holidays with my family. You know what makes our time together that much more enjoyable, delicious meat. Let me tell you where the best meat comes from. It comes from Good Ranchers. I know, because they made me a kosher steak. Let me tell you, this steak is just unbelievable. As a special gift to my listeners this holiday season, Good Ranchers is giving away two Black Angus New York strip steaks free with your order. These are two 12-ounce steakhouse quality cuts, a $70 value free. You're not going to want to miss the offer. Let me tell you why. Black Angus tastes better and is more tender than any other beef. Black Angus meat is marbled in such a way the fat is distributed thinly and evenly. This marbling gives it a consistent flavor you don't get with other meats. Plus, the Black Angus from Good Ranchers is hand-cut and trimmed by expert butchers, so you know every piece is going to be exquisite. While grocery store meat prices are on the rise, Good Ranchers is dedicated to helping you save as much as possible. If you subscribe to Good Ranchers today, you can lock in your price, avoid those crazy high prices at the grocery store, and get some free meat while you are at it pretty good deal. Go to GoodRanchers.com Ben. Use code Ben at checkout for this special offer. That's GoodRanchers.com Ben for two black Angus New York strip steaks free with your order. Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. So what exactly happened? The answer is the redefinition of marriage. And the redefinition of marriage is what happened. And the reason for the redefinition of marriage is because of the second thing on that chart, which is the divorce rates. So what you see is that no-fault divorce becomes a thing in the United States starting in about 1970. And you can, in 1969, Ronald Reagan, then governor of California in a move he said was one of the worst of his career. He signed into law in California, no-fault divorce, which was the idea that before that you had to make an excuse to a court why you wanted to divorce your spouse. Adultery, abuse and something that actually necessitated you breaking with your spouse. Then California led the way by signing no-fault divorce in 1969. And you start to see divorce rates skyrocket, right? That's why you see all these movies like Kramer versus Kramer that are cropping up in the 1970s, all about divorce and the breaking up of the American family. The rates of divorce skyrocket from about two in 1,000 all the way up to about five in 1,000. So they more than double over the course of a decade, like significantly more than double over the course of the decade. By early 1980s to mid-1980s, what you have is no-fault divorce that has now taken place in nearly every state. So what does that mean? It means fewer people start getting married. Why? Because what's the point? What's the point? What, what, what exactly is the lock-in? You may as well not get married. Cohabiting is essentially the same as marriage. If marriage is freely enterable and freely exitable, then what exactly is the point? Why don't you skip the whole thing? You may as well just cohabit. And so this is what you've seen. A rising share of people in the United States who are cohabiting or never getting together with anybody and a decline in the institution of marriage. And this, unsurprisingly, coincides with a rising share of singles in the United States. You can see a rising share of U.S. adults are now living without a spouse or a partner in the United States. That is not particularly shocking, right? You can see right here, this is from 1990 to 2019 from the Pew Research Center. For those who can't see the chart, what you see is that in 1990, about 67% of the population aged 25 to 54 was married. As of 2019, that number was 53%. That's a serious decline. You see that the number of people cohabiting from 1990 to 2019 has more than doubled, from 4% to 9%. And the number of people who are unpartnered who are not cohabiting and not married has risen from 29% to 38%. So we went from a country that was essentially two-thirds married to a country that is only about half married for people between the ages of 25 and 54 because the definition of marriage changed and marriage itself as an institution declined. This, not shockingly, coincides with the median age of first marriage rising dramatically by sex in the United States. Because again, if marriage is not a social institution fostered by everyone around it, people encouraged to get married, people encouraged to have kids, People told that their local communities, those militating institutions are going to help them out when they have kids. When we have kids, look, we have kids, right? We have three. There's a whole community built around people having kids. Here's the way that it works in my community when somebody has a child. First, there's a wedding always in my community. There is no single motherhood in the Orthodox Jewish community. It's not a thing that happens. So you get married, then you have sex and you have kids. When you have a kid, the entire community comes around you. I'd say almost every week in our community, there's a kid who's born. And when there's a kid who's born, the entire community starts a meal train. We have a WhatsApp group, and people just bring meals for like two weeks, minimum. Anything you need, you have a group of friends, you have family, you have the rabbi. Right, everyone will get involved to make sure that mom has everything that she needs because this is a communal thing. The community gets together to celebrate the birth of the child. This is why family formation is a big thing. There are weddings all the time in our community, and it's wonderful. It's a big social event, not just for partying, but also to celebrate the fact that there is a new. Little platoon, as Edmund Burke might put it, that is building up the society. And the ramifications, by the way, for progeneration are pretty dramatic. One of the stories that I saw recently is kind of amazing. Israel just had its recent election. Israel happens to be, by the way, the only Western country that has above replacement rates of childbearing. They're at about 2.5. So Israel, there, there's a woman who voted. She's 101, voted in the last Israeli election. She has 800 grandchildren, 800, sorry, great-grandchildren and descendants because she had like 10 kids and all of her kids had 10 kids and they all had 10 kids. And that's what you end up with. And that is not the way that it works in the United States right now. Right now, you can see, look at at the age, the dramatic age increase in marriage right here. So in 1950, the average age of a woman getting married was a little over 20. And the average age of a man was about 24. By the way, those are exactly the ages at which I got married to my wife. I was 24, she was 20. Now you see it starts to spike. Starting in 1950, it's still flat for men, men kind of trail, but then it starts to rise. By 2010, the average age of first marriage for women is about 27. The average age of first marriage for men is over 28. And that's just for the people who are getting married. That's not counting all the people who aren't getting married. If you look at the marital status of the US population this last year by sex, what you see is, again, a dramatic decline in the number of people who are married in the United States. This is why, again, all of this is to explain why single women are now a voter block and why they have particular interests as a voter block, the redefinition of marriage, the evisceration of the social institutions that used to be what kept people happy and healthy and provided the social support for them. For single people, those those institutions don't exist in the same way because, again, they're sort of left out of the bargain. In the Orthodox community, if you're single, there aren't meal trains, right? That's not the way that it works. If you're married and you have kids and you just had a baby, then the meal train comes. Okay, so marital status of the U.S. population in 2021 by sex. So what you see is that 47.35 million men have never been married. You see that 41.81 million women have never been married. The number of men who have been married total or who are married right now total is about 68 million men and about 68 million women, a little bit fewer men than women say that they are currently married, which is sort of odd. Not sure why there's an imbalance there. Theoretically, I guess. Maybe there are five men who are married to two women or something. It, it, very strange. In any case, if you add together the 42 million women who have never been married with the 15 million women who are divorced, that's 67 million women. There's 68 million women who are currently married. Okay, so that's now a major voter block. And what you see also, if you go back to the original Washington Examiner chart, what you actually see based on the voting rate is that unmarried women, even though they are, even though Theoretically, they are less of the voting population. They actually are kind of not. Okay, if you if you measure them out, what you see is that if there are 50, 56 million single or divorced women in the United States and 68 million married women in the United States, and you see the vast gap between how unmarried women vote and married women vote, it actually amounts to the same thing. Unmarried women completely canceled out married women in the last election cycle. And that's because of that vast voter imbalance. So. This raises a question. Why are single women voting the way that they are? Why, are? why do single women want more government? Why do single women vote differently on abortion, as we'll see they do? Why do they do all of this? So you might think, for example, that single women should actually vote for less government because single women have more college degrees than men, for example. If you're highly educated, maybe you earn more. If you earn more, maybe you want fewer taxes. Maybe you need fewer social services. What you see, for example, is that women are now getting more college degrees and men are falling behind more. If you look at the number of, if you look at the number of women who are getting college degrees versus the number of men who are getting college degrees, you can see that there has been a dramatic increase in the number of women who are getting college degrees between 1970 and 2021. In 1970, 12% of women aged 25 to 34 had a bachelor's degree. As of 2021, that number was 46 million. For men, the number went from 20% to 36%. So men went from almost double the number of bachelor's degrees as women to having about 25% fewer bachelor's degrees than women. So you see that, that women in the United States are outpacing men in college graduation. However, one of, and you see that men are falling behind. You see that men are falling behind pretty dramatically. So why exactly is it that single women are voting for the government? To answer that, what you have to see is the household hours worked and female labor force participation rate over time. So if you take a look at this, this is kind of fascinating. These are some stats from a study from the University of Chicago showing the hours worked per adult and the the labor force participation rate. So hours worked for, for single women versus married women. What you see is that for married women, the number of household hours increased dramatically between like 1955 and 1985. And for single women, it kind of of dipped and then it stayed even. The the labor force participation rate is the thing that really is is worthwhile noting here. What you see is that married women start to work in much, much bigger numbers than single women. Single women in 1955, 80% of them were participating in the labor force. In 1985, 80% of them were participating in the labor force. The great lie that single women weren't in the labor force in 1955, it's not true. They may have had different jobs. They may have had jobs that weren't as lucrative. They may have been discriminated against. They were working. Single women were working at a clip of about 80% in the 1950s. And they're working at a clip of about 80% in 1985. Married women is the difference. Why? Why did married women suddenly start working? The answer is a lot of the single women kept working when they got married. And what this meant is what Elizabeth Warren called the two-income trap. When married women kept working as opposed to going home and staying with the kids, largely because of the idea that marriage was no longer a social institution, raising kids was no longer nearly as important. That women in the workplace, this was a vital, vital thing to do, it was a vital constituency to serve. Once that happened, you ended up with an actual gap emerging between single women and married women in terms of of earnings. Because married women are now part of a two-income household. And those married women are earning along with their husband a lot more than the single women. So single women started working and kept working. Married women over time were not working. They would, they would go from single and working to married and not working. And that would now be a one-income household. And then what you see is that they start working. So now you have a very high married labor force participation rate. And what that means is that those households do amazing because they have twice the income. This is, again, Elizabeth Warren used to be a kind of creative and independent thinker. If you go back to the early 2000s, kind of shocking. She wrote a book called The Two-Income Trap. And what she said is what this was creating was Inflation in real estate, for example, because now you had two incomes and they could pay for bigger houses, as opposed to the single woman who's locked out, or the single man who is locked out, or the one-income household that was locked out. What does all of that mean? It means that unpartnered adults are faring less well. Right? You can actually see the impact on single women. Right? Married women are now doing better than ever, but single women are doing worse than in in many ways than they ever have done. Unpartnered. Adults are not faring as well as partnered peers on a range of outcomes, according to Pew Research. So, what you see here is that the number of partnered people who have completed at least a bachelor's degree is forty-one percent. Unpartnered people, twenty-nine percent. Median earnings: partnered adults forty-nine thousand dollars, single adults thirty-five thousand dollars. Right. This is like the numbers are, are pretty stunning right here. They're not. They're not faring as well. So, what does that mean? Well, it means that they need a second income. Who's that second income going to be? For, for single women, who's it going to be? For a lot of single women who may not have the bachelor's degree. Because remember, only 46% of women actually have a bachelor's degree, which means 54% do not. So what's going to happen to all the single women who don't have a bachelor's degree or who do have a bachelor's degree, but they aren't earning that much money? Where is that second income going to come from? Who's going to be the partner to them? Well, the answer is, again, because we eviscerated marriage as a social institution that was important for people to engage in, that provides fulfillment, that creates social structure, that creates social stability. Because of that, what you end up with is the Joe Biden famous life of Lindo. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Compared with the 2019 mid-year figures, some major cities are experiencing as much as a 50% increase in homicides and a 36% increase in aggravated assaults, which means a lot of Americans right now, they're out there getting guns. But it's not enough to legally and safely own a firearm. In order to fully protect yourself and your loved ones, you have to be prepared for the mental, physical, and legal ramifications of self-defense in case, God forbid, you have to use it against somebody. That's why I'm a member of the U.S. Concealed Carry Association. You should be as well. We've talked on this show about good guys with guns using their legal weapons to protect their families and communities, and sometimes they get hailed as heroes. Other times, if they don't have the proper legal protection, they get hauled off to jail. You need to make sure you are prepared for all possible outcomes should you find yourself in the position of having to use your firearm right now. USCCA is giving away a free concealed carry and family defense guide and a chance to win 1000 bucks to buy a firearm to protect yourself and your family. Just text Ben to 87222. In this 58-page defense guide, you will learn how to detect attackers before they see you, what the USCCA has learned about school shootings, equipment and training basics, about the law and justice systems, how to responsibly own and store a gun, particularly if you have little kids the way I do, and a whole lot more. Text BEN to 87222 for instant access to this free guide. Enter for the chance to win 1000 bucks to put toward a firearm to protect your family. Text BEN to 87222 right now. Also, tonight at 98 Central, we are releasing a brand new episode of The Search. This one is a doozy. In it. I sit down with newly reelected Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as Dr. Jordan B. Peterson in Tel Aviv. It is a fantastic conversation. It's something you're not going to see anywhere else. We literally just sit over dinner and chat. It's amazing. This episode is available exclusively on Daily Wire+. Plus. If you're not yet a member, head on over to dailywire.com Ben to join us. That's dailywire.com Ben today. Okay, so what do you end up with if you have an entire group of people, single women, who are falling behind married women? Who are not engaged in a social structure, who have had the most important mediating institution in human existence, marriage, ripped away from them. They've been told that it's no longer essential. It's not important. In fact, in many ways, it's an institution that hems them in and harms their creativity. So what do they require? Well, they're gonna require a couple of things. One, they might require some government help. You know when rise single women are voting at a larger clip for bigger government, this would be the answer. This is why Joe Biden I mean, Joe Biden knows his own constituency. This is why you'll recall that Joe Biden's campaign actually put out what they called the life of Linda. And the life of Linda is exactly who Joe Biden thinks he is talking to. It is these women. Quote, Linda is a working mother in Peoria, Illinois. She works at a local manufacturing facility as a production worker and earns $40,000 per year. She is pregnant with her son, Leo. Now, where's dad? He doesn't exist. There is no dad. Apparently, it was a, a virgin conception. No one knows. She, dad, dad does not. He's nowhere in the picture. Who's dad? Joe Biden is dad. The government is dead. Once Leo is born, Linda begins receiving child tax credits of $300 per month, $3,600 annually to help cover essential costs like groceries, rent and medicine. What a happy, fulfilled life. That's amazing because the government is now paying the check. As Leo grows up, the government helps cover the cost for his daycare, guaranteeing Linda doesn't need to pay more than 7% of her income on child care. Now, again, it used to be in two-parent married households before we decided that it was imperative and very important. Not that women should be able to choose to work, but that women should work. It is important. They must work. Before that, it used to be that you didn't need daycare because daycare was basically a factory where you sent your kids. Mom spent an awful lot of time with the kids. When Leo turns three, he is then immediately shipped off to a government training center, a high-quality pre-K program for free. How exciting. It's all very exciting. Again, all of this because of the evisceration of marriage. When Leo leaves high school, he's able to enroll in a community college thanks to extended Pell Grants and investments in community college. So mom and dad don't work and, and scrape and save and earn in order to pay for the college education. We just give it for free. Then of course, Leo ends up as a, a turbine, a wind turbine technician. Mm-hmm. This is where we get into the realm of fantasy where wind turbines are, are going to power the future of the United States and create all the jobs. But the important thing to understand about Leo is that it's not about Leo. It's about Linda. The life of Linda, does this sound like a a fulfilling, happy life to you? Where's Linda's engagement with her church? Where's Linda's community? doesn't exist. Where's Linda's husband? doesn't exist. This is who Joe Biden is talking to though. Because again, if you're a single woman falling behind your married peers and you have been told all your life that marriage is actually a stymieing, patriarchal institution, and you look across the road at at the women who got married and have kids, and many of them also work, And you say to yourself, maybe I'm missing out on something. That doesn't feel good. And so what do you need? What do you really need? You know what would have helped Linda here? What might have helped Linda is if she never had Leo at all. What might have helped Linda is if she'd had an abortion. You wonder why single women in the United States are so invested in abortion? Because marriage is not on the radar. Marriage is not as important. Now, of course, it isn't true for all single women. But it's true for a large segment of single women. Is that if they are militantly single, if the idea is I'm happy because I'm single. Single is great. Single is freedom. But one of the aspects of female freedom would be not being saddled with a child, as Barack Obama once said. If my daughter made a mistake, I wouldn't want her to be punished with a child. Now, most of us don't see as punishment. We see it as one of the goals of life is to have children. But because we've eviscerated marriage, and marriage is a social institution, then kids become sort of like a purse, or like a dog. Do you need a kid? Is the kid good for you? What if you get pregnant with the kid? It's kind of inconvenient. Let's be real about this. And this is what you see. The women who get abortions in America are almost entirely unmarried. Despite the fact that the left in the United States likes to claim that the average woman who is having an abortion is actually a married mother of three and just can't deal with her fourth kid who may be Down syndrome or something. First of all, bad enough. But that's not actually what the stats show. What they show is that only 14% of women who have sought an abortion, according to Guttmacher Institute, are married. 31% are cohabiting. 46% are never married and single. 9% are previously married, but now single. That that is the gap. That is the breakdown. You wonder why abortion sent single women to the polls in big numbers and why they voted 68 to 31 for Democrats? Because Roe did matter to them. Roe mattered to them because we have created an entire class of human beings in the United States that didn't exist for nearly all of human history. Human beings who are militantly in favor of dropping the, the things that make life most valuable, the things that make life most meaningful. That's not their fault. And, and again, there are some single women who don't fit into this box. It's this just the thing they want to do. And yeah, they're happy. They have a great life. But that is not what the social science statistics show. The vast majority of people who live a lifelong single existence, particularly true of women, lifelong single existence, no kids. That is not a recipe for happiness. It is not. I'm sorry to break it to you. I'm sorry if this is offensive to people. It is not a recipe for broad scale human happiness. It is not the recipe for a successful society. By the way, the people who also get abortions, they live in blue states. They are single women living in blue states. So you wonder why exactly single women living in blue states are voting for Democrats? That would be the answer. 68% of of women who obtained an abortion voted for Joe Biden. 32% lived in states that voted for Trump. So this is why Joe Biden is very much interested in the votes of single women. And this undergirds so many of the other culture battles that are currently taking place in the United States. This is why parents are now forming up as a a block because it turns out that married women and married men are much more of a voter block and they're going to become a more cohesive voter block as they're alienated from the values that Joe Biden has promulgated and his party has promulgated and the left has promulgated in the United States for the last 50, 60 years. As that happens, parents are going to start looking across the aisle and they're going to say, I don't understand why you guys get to decide what happens with our kids. This has educational implications. The same election where single women showed up to vote for Democrats, for Congress, because they wanted to preserve abortion. The same election. Pretty much every school board in the country moved to the right because you know who's animated to vote on behalf of their kids? People who have kids. You know what those people actually care about? Militating social institutions like marriage and local community and how their schools work. All guys, the rest of the show is continuing now. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be getting into Donald Trump attacking Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin. Plus, Lila Rose from Live Action stops by to discuss the effects on the pro-life movement of the election this week. If you're not a member, click the link in the description and join us.